I'm going to share some thoughts this morning based on uh, a particular passage that if you've been in church for a while, you, um, you may well have, I'm sure you've read it, uh, you might well have heard talks on it, <clears throat> but it's a passage that uh, for me has been speaking to me again recently, and it's the story of um, Jesus and the disciples and what happens when they get caught up in a storm. And so you can find it in, in Luke chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 22. I'll read it. And then, and then we'll go for it. But before I do that, I will find my notes. Otherwise, you could be here for a very long time. Um, all right. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the wind and the water, and they obey him. Um, there was a, a famous uh, stuntman, tightroper, who, who lived back in the 1800s. You might well have heard of him. His name was Blondin. And uh, his best-known trick, the reason people still talk about him, is because he used to tightrope across Niagara Falls. And uh, crowds would gather to see him do this. And, and what would generally happen is he would sort of stand before the crowds and he would say, I am going to walk on this tightrope, this thin wire. It's about 1,000 feet there and back. I'm going to walk across Niagara Falls. There's no safety net. If he falls, he's almost certainly going to die. Um, who believes I can do it? And this whole crowd would go, we believe you can do it, Blondin. We believe you can do it, right? And so he would do it. He would, he would tightrope back and forth. And then he would come back and he could say, and they would all cheer. And then he'd say, right, now I'm going to do it again, but this time I'm going to take a wheelbarrow with me. Who believes I can do it? And the crowd would all go, we believe, Blondin, we believe you can do this. And so he would do it. He would go over with a wheelbarrow, come back with a wheelbarrow. And then for the finale of this trick, he would say, okay, I'm going to do it again with the wheelbarrow, but this time I'm going to put somebody in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> now, who believes I can do it? And they would all go, we believe, Blondin, we believe you can do it. And then he would say, okay, who would like to volunteer? <laughs> At which point, there was always, no matter how many times he did it, deadly silence in the crowd. And uh, I, I love that story because it just, it, it, for me anyway, makes the point that there's a difference between saying you believe something and actually... Um, putting your money where your mouth is, so to speak, actually trusting it. And when it comes to um, following Jesus, when it comes to faith, saying we believe something is not the same thing as living like we do. And whenever we follow God, there's, there are moments in life where we, we there, it's like um, where our profession of faith, where our statements of belief, where the fact that we, we, we chat and we say, this is, what, this is what I believe, where they're tested. And, it, and it's moments where they're tested where we find out whether we, we really believe them or not, or whether we just say that we do. And faith is always tested for Jesus' people. And what we'll find is in the world that we're a part of, our faith is going to be tested many times on the journey. Um, in part, that is because our world... If there's one thing that I think would describe it at the moment, among others, 
is it's, it's a scared world. This is a fearful world at the moment, with good reason, because there's a lot of scary things going on in the world, and there's a lot of talk about doom and gloom. People get scared for different reasons, some of them more serious than others. Um, I, I watched a documentary a little while back, and uh, it was this ITV1 thing, and it was about um, people with phobias. And uh, they were obviously trying to make it entertaining because they found people with the weirdest phobias that they could find. Uh, and I found this little, uh, this is an article about it. It says, while spiders and heights are common sources of anxiety, many people's lives are blighted by phobias of seemingly innocuous objects. David Allison, a therapist based at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge, was filmed treating some of the worst sufferers in an ITV1 documentary. Um, they include Sue Williams, 37, from Dudley in the West Midlands, who is so terrified of knees that she has not touched her own for 16 years and cannot say kneecap without bursting into tears. Uh, I don't like my own, this is a quote from Sue, and I can't touch them. I certainly can't touch anyone else's, she said. I know it's strange, people tease me about it, and they have every right to, but I think I'm the normal one, and everyone else is weird. Um, until her therapy sessions, Mrs. Williams was unable to wash her knees in the bath and could not look at her husband's knees. Mr. Allison's treatment, this is true, this actually happened. Mr. Allison's treatment involved showing her photographs of knees, which reduced her to sobs. In the final session, he wore a pair of shorts and encouraged her to look at his kneecaps until the feelings of terror subsided. Uh, there's another lady who's featured in this called Louise Arnold. Um, from Gloucester, and she is scared of peas, as in the little green peas. Uh, and she, and it, she, she says, explaining her dislike of peas, she said, they tend to just look at me, ganging up on me. All the hairs on the back of my neck go up. I have to know where they are in the supermarket before I go in. It's just controlling my life now. Um, so there we go, true stories. Um, but there are things that actually, it's not really very funny that we're afraid of them. And uh, if you look at the stats of some of the stuff that's happening at the moment, it's pretty scary. So self-harm. Um, the UK has one of the highest rates of self-harm in Europe. And between 1 uh, in 12 and 1 in 15 young people deliberately self-harm. According to a survey done by the Office of National Statistics, nearly 1 in 5 adults in the UK experience anxiety or depression. Um, if you start looking at the elderly, those, those numbers go up. Uh, nearly 80,000 children and young people suffer from severe depression. Over 8,000 of those are children under the age of 10. Suicide uh, is the most common cause of death in men under the age of 35 in the UK. Um, I read this survey that said 420,000 individuals in Britain believed that they were experiencing work-related stress at a level that was making them ill. It's estimated around 1 in 100 women between the ages of 15 and 30 has anorexia. 1 million people in the UK have been diagnosed with an eating disorder, including girls as young as 7. And most of those statistics, by the way, were before the pandemic. So think about what it might be like now. And when we come to know Jesus, this is what I thought in the early years. I thought, you come to know Jesus, right? And then, and then all the pain's meant to stop, because you know God. So isn't it meant to get easy? Um, aren't, we, aren't we, you know, but, but that's not how it works. And Jesus himself in his life, his life is full of hardship. He's rejoicing, but his life is full of hardship. It ends in the cross. 
The same was true for the church. And what we see when we study the scripture is that actually the battle and the blessing go hand in hand. They're like the two tracks that make a train track run. They're always parallel. And so you see good things happening like the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost followed by persecution. You see Peter stand up and give a talk at which the end of which 3,000 people come to know Jesus and then he's put in prison. And so to to become a follower of Jesus, I've been realizing recently, I don't know why it's taken me so long to get the lesson, but it's not a free pass away from suffering. It's it's not a get out of jail free card from pain and from hardship. In fact, Jesus says to us the opposite. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. It's going to happen. You will have trouble. And um, so often, the suffering that we experience in life, it's like these storms that happened on Lake Galilee. Galilee was famous for having storms that came out of nowhere. Suddenly, you know, everything's calm. It seems like it was calm when Jesus and the disciples set off. And then from nothing, there's suddenly a crazy storm that they find themselves in the middle of. And isn't that suffering at its worst? It's the the things that you don't see coming that really get you. You know, it's the diagnosis that you weren't expecting. It's the breakdown of a marriage that you thought was going to go great. It's the, it's the colleague at work that loses their temper with you. It's the unexpected bill at the end of the month. It's the storm that you didn't see coming. And, uh, and yet, we as Jesus' followers, we have a resource to draw on that no one else has. That means we can sail through any storm. It won't be easy, but we can make it to the other side. And so back to the story. This moment of testing comes for the disciples. You know, they say they trust him, and then they find themselves in great danger. And, um, uh, you know, their reaction is kind of, it's pretty understandable because we're told there is a crazy storm happening. This isn't like they're on an airplane and there's minor turbulence and the seatbelt sign has come on. It's like they're actually in real danger. So they panic. Master, master, don't you care if we drown is what they come and say to him. And uh, Jesus says, you know, he wakes up, switches the storm off and then turns to them and says, where is your faith? And what that shows us is that their reaction, running around like headless chickens and panicking, That is the opposite of faith. Um, To have faith is to be calm in the midst of a storm. To have faith is to trust in the midst of persecution, as it were. It's to to have confidence despite the evidence around us. That's what it is to have faith. He says, where is your faith? And uh, Tim Keller, when he's talking about this passage, he makes this point. That, That question, where is your faith? What it shows us is that faith is not often what we think it is. Because we can think of faith as something that kicks in automatically, Uh, in the same way that if you've ever been lying in bed at night and the temperature in the house drops below a certain level that you've set it for, the boiler kicks in. Do you know that sound? It's like, and suddenly it's like, you know it's it's fired up and it's it's heating the house up. Um, And if it doesn't kick in automatically, we think, "Uh uh-oh, there's a problem with the boiler, something's broken. We think of faith in those kind of uh, terms. We can think of it as this automatic thing. Something's happened in my life and it's hard, so my faith should automatically just kick in. And if it doesn't kick in, then what that shows is I haven't got any or I haven't got enough. But, but faith is not that. The fact that Jesus says, where is your faith, is interesting. He doesn't say, you haven't got any faith. He doesn't say, why haven't you got any faith? He says, where is it? 
In the same way that if I knew you were the owner of a magnificent umbrella and we went out walking in the rain and I turn to you and I see that you are getting absolutely drenched. You didn't bring it with you. Now, what I would do in a moment like that is I would not say, why don't you have an umbrella? Because I know you own an umbrella. Didn't you think an umbrella was necessary? What, what I would say is, where's your umbrella? Where is it? This is exactly the sort of, you know, weather. You want to bring your umbrella with you. You ought to get that umbrella out. You should go home and find your umbrella and then come back with the umbrella. That's what I'd say. Where's your umbrella? It's kind of like that. It's like they're in the middle of the storm and Jesus just turns to them and says, it doesn't say you don't own any faith. He says, where's your faith? I want to get that out. You're going to need it in the weather like this. You're going to need some faith. Why don't you get it out? It's, what it says to us is that faith, as much as it's anything else, is it's a choice. It's an action. It's a decision that we make. And every storm that we face, every storm we have to sail through, every diagnosis that we might get, every relationship that might break down, every bill that we're not sure how we're going to pay it, is an opportunity for faith to be exercised, tested, and therefore grown. I don't know how much you know the story of C.S. Lewis, but in his later years, he ended up getting married. He never thought he would marry, but he... He fell in love and he married somebody. And then three years after they married, his wife died. And A Grief Observed is a book that he wrote in his pain, where he just pours his pain out in writing. And, and, and in it, you see his inner turmoil. And he says things like, you know what? For all these years, I've been saying I believe this stuff and then find myself in this position and, and wondering whether I've just been talking about how much I trust the rope rather than really knowing that it's going to hold me. And... and Moments of testing and moments of suffering, those are opportunities to say, do I really believe this? Do I really trust you are who you say you are? And our decision in a moment like that can be a tipping point for our relationship with him. Where is your faith? You might want to bring that with you. And the question I would have then is, well, how do I do that? Um, and I think the answer to it is found in what the disciples do right at the end. It says, in fear and amazement, they ask one another, who is this? And that's a question that we as the church, we've got to be asking one another all the time. Who is this who's with us? Who is he? The one who's with us in the storm. Let's not just ask that question after the storm has stopped. Let's ask ourselves the question in the middle of it. Um, and because for us, it's not about faith, this thing that floats in the atmosphere, this cloud, like, you know, like a smell or something when you walk through the perfume shop. It's not this, this ambiguous thing. For us, it's about concrete confidence in a person. It's about, I know you. I know what you're like. I know your character. I know your heart. Faith is trusting Jesus Christ. So the way that we get our faith out, oughtn't you to have brought some faith with you during this weather? The way that we get our faith out, oughtn't you to have some faith in this trial, in this tribulation, in this thing you've got to overcome? The way we get faith out is we ask ourselves the question, who is this, this Jesus that we follow? One way we ask that question is we might want to say to ourselves, is he greater than the storm? And the answer to that, on one level, is really obvious. On another level, the disciples have forgotten it. Do you ever find yourself forgetting that? Um, they've seen him feed 5,000 people. 
They've seen him cast demons out of somebody who's got a legion. No one else can go near them. They've seen him raise somebody from the dead. And they're panicking in this moment because in the current crisis, they've forgotten all the stuff he did before. Have you ever done that? And so when we find ourselves in a place like this, uh, what we need, as Jeremy just said in his word, is the broader lens, the bigger picture, to stand away from what is immediate and clouding our vision and look up at the vista of who he is, to take our eyes off just the, the next step ahead of us and look at the landscape around us, to, to, to not just be so enmeshed in the current thing that's that's consuming our brains and crippling our hearts, but look up to the stars in the sky and see who our God is and ask ourselves questions. Do I believe that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God? That God the Son, pre-existent, became a human being? Do I believe that he was nailed to a piece of wood for my selfishness, for my mistakes, for my sin? Do, do I believe that he, he died and then physically rose again, punching a hole out of the back of the grave and walking out into eternity? Do I believe that he passed through the heavens? That he, see, he sits now next to his father? Do I believe that he controls the universe, that he orders it? Do I believe that he's going to come back and that when he comes back, he will right every wrong? Do I believe that when he comes back, he's going to bring with him his peace and his wholeness, his justice and his life? Do I believe these things? Because if I believe this, then there, if I trust in those facts, there is nothing I cannot face. Is he greater than the storm? Another way of asking who is this is to ask the question, is he close in the storm? Is he close? And this speaks not just to his greatness, but to his goodness. Is he close? Um, you know, the disciples, uh, they panic. Master, master, we're going to drown. In, in Mark's version of this story, it says, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care? And it's like, that's, that's a really, again, I get that question because I've asked it many times. If you were on a plane, and this isn't minor turbulence, but literally like the engines have cut out and the plane is nose diving towards the ground and you turn to your mate who you're flying with and they are, you know, with one of those neck pillows. What are you going to do in a moment like that? I'll do this. Wake up, right? Let's at least panic together. Let's at least, you know, scream as we die together. Let's do that together. Don't you care that we're dying? Right? It's a normal reaction. And we do the same with God when we go through something hard. Hello? Like, do you see me? Do you understand what I'm going through? And, and there's a sense in the disciples' question, don't you care if we drown? Hello? We're the apostles. We're your gang, right? We're your crew. We're your mates. It's us. It's us guys, Jesus. Don't you care? It's me, Andy. Don't you care about me? Have you forgotten about me? I thought you loved me. Don't you care if I drown? What have they missed in their panic and their fear? What have they missed? One of my boys, uh, a little while back, he came to our bedroom at three o'clock in the morning and uh, he was scared of the dark. And so Beth elbowed me out of the bed and I had to deal with this one. It was my turn. She's done her fair share. So I knelt down next to him and I gave him a really rational explanation, a three-point talk, if you will that explained to him why he had no need to be scared of the dark. It was very memorable. Each of the points started with the same letter. 
And then I sent him back into bed, thinking, that's going to deal with it. Well, 15 minutes later, he came back into the room. And so this time, I went into his room with him, and I got a little nightlight that had had a battery that ran out, and I changed the battery, put it there next to him, so it was a little bit lighter in the room, and then I left him to it. 15 minutes later, he came back into our bedroom. This time, I went with him into the room, and I thought, I've got no choice. So I got him into bed, and I said, hey, son, I'm going to lie here with you in the bed, in this bunk bed. I'm going to lie next to you, and I'll stay here. And so we lay there for a while. And uh, after about 10 minutes or so, he wanted to check that I was there. So he went on my face. <laughs> and sure enough, I was still there. Uh, definitely not asleep, still wide awake, 3.30 in the morning by now. You know. and, then, and then like another however long went by, and he just wanted to check I was there again. And then um, when he was sure he knew I was there, even though the lights were still switched off, he fell asleep. If there was a title for this talk, it would be How to Sleep in a Storm. Not how to make it to the other side. How to sleep in it. And the way we sleep in any storm is to know his presence in the midst. It's to know that he's with us, come what may. And if you hear nothing else this morning, hear what I've been speaking to myself, which is, you can never, ever lose him. Just consider it, right? One of the ways that I, I think about it is like this. Um, there's a verse in Hebrews I love. Hebrews 12, verse 2. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, whenever I read that, um, for me, it reminds me, and forgive me, I know I talk about my family, but basically they're the only sermon illustration I have, right? For me, it reminds me of, um, we got four kids, so I have been uh, there at four labors. You might say I'm something of an expert on labor. <laughs> and uh, I can say that best not here, otherwise I'd be dead. Um, but uh, I've learned through these four labors basically what my job is. My primary job description in those moments is not to annoy Beth too much. And so don't eat my Pringles too loudly while we're in like hour five of the labor. And it goes on. Text my mother-in-law regular updates about how it's all going. But if there's one thing I am meant to do proactively, because labor is exhausting, and there are moments of extreme fatigue, and there are moments of fear, and you, know, you feel a little bit out of control, and all of that sort of stuff. If there's one thing that I am meant to do is to encourage and so um, at times where Beth is, is, you know, she's been at it for like 10 hours, she's sleep deprived, she's, she's frightened, she's not sure how it's going to go at the end. That is the role where I'm meant to step up and say, Beth, you can do this. You keep going. You keep pushing. You hang tough. You stay there. You come on. You can do this. And do you know what I do in a moment like that? I, I, say, I say, listen, just hang in there just a little while longer, because do you know why? On the other side of it, you're going to hold our boy. You are going to hold him in your arms, so don't you give up. Now, what we hear in this verse is, we're told that for the joy set before Jesus, he endures the cross. And so I imagine it in my mind as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They looked at the agony that was ahead of them with the cross, the labor that they were going to have to endure, and on the other side of it, do you know what they got? You. 
Do you know what kept them going? What was the joy? Me. It was, it was us. And I picture it like they said to each other, come on, we can do this. We're going to go through this storm. We're going to endure not just a storm on a lake in a boat, but a storm on a cross on a hill. We're going to endure this storm because on the other side of it is them. On the other side of it is that joy. And so he sees us in this way. As impossible as it can be to absorb this into our hearts, we are his joy. He has been through the cross for us. We are his prize. And so do you think for a second he is going to leave you alone? Not for a moment. It will never, ever happen. He is yours. He's given himself to you. You can never, ever be apart from him. This is the truth. He will either end the storm or he will endure it next to us. He will endure it with us. And we might say, but you're asleep. And maybe he's not acting as quickly as we would like him to. But that doesn't detract from the truth. And the truth is this, he's with you. And I know it's hard, but he's with you. And let's finish with this. As they sail, he falls asleep. I mean, one of the things that I just found out this morning, this is crazy to me, there's only one time in all of the Gospels that Jesus falls asleep. And this is it. Of all the moments, it's in a storm. Like the, the place where you think you would be least likely to fall asleep. So you're, you're outside in a boat and it's, you know, windy and it's raining and the water's splashing everywhere and you've got your disciples running around like headless chickens. And that's the moment we're told he falls, he falls asleep. Jesus, um, he's always teaching us through his life. This is a living parable. So just as he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and he was making a point, just as he washed their feet and he was making a point, just as he instituted the Last Supper and he was making a point through his actions, do you think he's making a point when he falls asleep in a storm? I mean, a really deep sleep. They're literally like, come on, wake up. What point is he making? The point he's making is this. When you're confident in the goodness of the Father, you can have peace that passes all understanding, a peace that is defiant almost against any circumstance. And for us, the way we get this is we ask ourselves again, who is this who's with me in my boat? And I finish with this. If you find yourself stressed, anxious, worried, depressed, overwhelmed by what is happening, um, I understand that, and I find myself in a similar position at times. If you find yourself kept up at night, I get that one too. And the answer, this is the thing not to hear from this is, oh man, I'm really struggling to sleep, and I'm really stressed, and now I feel like even more of a failure because I'm meant to be able to fall asleep perfectly peacefully in the middle of this storm. Don't hear that. But do hear, we don't need to stay there. That's not the place. We'll, we'll visit there. But that's not to be the place where we have to live. We get to live in the midst of whatever is happening with a blessed assurance, with a joyful knowledge that we have a God 
who is the Lord of the storm and who's with us, come what may.